text this morning is Job chapter 30. Please turn with me to Job chapter 30. Follow along as I read. This is God's word. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick salt wart and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents, they must dwell in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes, they bray. Under the nettles, they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land. And now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds about me like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyres turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. We typically associate the Psalms with laments. I'm calling this this morning Job's Lament. A lament is a voicing of a personal struggle in the wake of some tragedy. And the tone of a lament is one of sadness and longing. The emotional state of the lamenter is fragile. And as we read a lament, we can imagine the voice of the lamenter alter alternating between a, a noisy pleading and crying out and then quiet prayers of weeping. Many times the, the, the Psalms 
fit into this genre of a lament as the psalmist on behalf of himself or on behalf of God's covenant people expresses grief over some difficult situation. And it's been said that there's this pattern that can be associated with such laments. There's first the circumstance of being mistreated by some enemy. Second, there is in a lament a wrestling with God. A lament is usually in the form of a prayer or at least involves a wrestling with God's providence and character because of what he is allowing to happen. And then third, the lamenter is wrestling with himself. He voices his inner struggle as he's trying to figure out what's happening, trying to make sense of it all, and in general, seeking a resolution from God that can calm him and bring him some reassurance to a struggling faith. These elements of a lament we find here in Job 30. And to place this lament in its context, last time we considered chapter 29, where Job is reminiscing over his past life. Um, that was the good old days. That was a time marked as he sees it when God's favor was upon him. And the evidence of that favor, based on his experience, was the time when he was wealthy and his, he had this place of prominence in society as a judge and as a city elder, and he was making a difference in helping the oppressed and the outcast. And Job recalls those past days, the good old days, with longing. At the same time, he didn't describe at that time what his current life was like, only, that, only what he had lost in the past. But now in chapter 30, he describes the state of his current life. We already know something of what his current life is like um, after he lost his family, his wealth, and his health. But this lament sets forth his struggle in some new terms and in more detail. And in order to highlight the massive change that Job has experienced, I don't know if you caught it, but we have three times in this text a word that's translated as but now or and now. We see this in verse 1 and verse 9 and in verse 16. But now, Job says, or and now, this tells us that a change has taken place. And the idea is that what Job has just described in chapter 29 is now being contrasted with what is going on in the present. There were these good old days, but now things are quite different. And what I want to do in expositing this chapter is to highlight the basic elements of a lament. So we're going to begin with what Job says about his enemies, who we are going to call his mockers. And a dominating part of Job's lament is a struggle with the fact that he knows God is sovereign over what is happening to him. And like we also find in the laments of the Psalms, there's this personal element as Job here wears his heart on his sleeve and gives voice to his deepest inner struggles. So I've taken as the theme of chapter 30, Job's lament, and I've developed this theme in connection with two points, his mockers and his struggle. So we begin with his mockers. Uh, the first point flows out of verses 1 through 15 with two subpoints. First of all, who is mocking? Um, that's verses 1 through 8. And then how Job is being mocked, what that mockery looks like, which is verses 9 through 15. So we begin with first, who is mocking? And Job begins this chapter with these words, but now they laugh at me. As we ended chapter 29, Job was the complete opposite of someone who was being laughed at. He was one of the most highly respected individuals in that society. People looked to him for advice. 
He sat as chief, he says. He lived like a king among his people. And what stands out is that he was not using his position of power for prestige and pleasure, but he was genuinely concerned for the people who looked to him. Though virtually a chief and a king, he was the benevolent kind of ruler who comforts mourners, verse 25. That's in uh, chapter 29. One verse from the end of chapter 29, verse 24, Job describes his relationship with the people who looked up to him, and he says, I smiled on them when they had no confidence, and the light of my face they did not cast down. I would point out that literally it says in the Hebrew where we have in the ESV, he says, I smiled on them. Literally, it says, he laughed towards them. It's the same word, same Hebrew word found in chapter 30, verse 1 of these enemies who mockingly laugh at Job. It's a word that can mean laughing at people in mockery, or it can mean laughing towards people about things that are worth mocking. There's a a different preposition that's used in each case. So in Job's case, he was not laughing at his friends. He was laughing towards them. About what, we we would like to know. And uh, it says he was laughing at their lack of confidence. The Hebrew word refers to faith. So in a sense, Job was laughing, mocking their lack of faith. Why? Because our God is so worthy of our trust. Job's laughter was something like the approach of the bubbly, optimistic Christian speaking to a downtrodden soul. What, how can you be so sad when you have a God who loves you? Do you honestly think God's going to abandon you? And as he lets out a chuckle, he remarks, you're being silly to have such a small view of God that you can't put your confidence in him. Job's audience knew that he wasn't making fun of them. He wasn't laughing over their lack of faith. Um, like as a personal attack, but a lack of faith in our God is something to be legitimately ridiculed. And Job says they realized what he was doing. They apparently accepted his laughter because the light of his face, that is his smile, his positive attitude that Job was conveying to them, they did not cast down. They agreed he was right. His laughter helped them to see the truth and to be encouraged But now, chapter 30 opens, we have people laughing at Job in scornful mockery. And these mockers are, Job has noted, men who are younger than I. In Job's past, remember, in chapter 29, verse 80, describes the young men, they would see him and they would withdraw out of respect, ready to hear him speak, ready to to hear Job's wisdom. Now there are young people who laugh at him in disrespect. Who are these mockers? Well, Job describes their family, their usefulness, their reputation, and their character. So first, Job describes their family in the first verse in the second part, when he says, whose fathers, speaking of these young folks, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. And uh, we suspect that in Job's day, we certainly know that in the, in the time of the, of the patriarchs, uh, as part of the, the culture of that part of the world, shepherds were considered the lowest of the low, and sheepdogs would be a tool of these lowly shepherds. And Job is saying that he would not have given the fathers of these mockers a job tending the dogs of his shepherds. So lowly in his mind were these fathers, these families from which these sons came 
these mocking sons. And then second, Job describes the useful, usefulness, or we should say the lack of usefulness of uh, these young men. He says, what could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone through want and hard hunger? They gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick salt wart and the leaves of the bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are unemployable. That's, uh, I think, one of the things we could say from this. They have nothing to offer. They have no strength. They have no stamina. And this is because they are undernourished. They have no adequate food resources. They're, they're, they're described here scrounging around, even at night, for food in the waste and desolate places of the desert. The ESV here says they gnaw the dry ground. Literally, in Hebrew, it says they gnaw the desert which pictures them as gnawing on the roots and shrubs of the desert, like saltwort, which is mentioned here, which one commentator says is a shrub that is very salty and is eaten only by people in very dire circumstances. And they also gnaw on bushes and even the roots of the broom tree, which we are told are very bitter and are eaten only by the most desperately poor. Christopher Ash, in his commentary, summarizes these youths this way. They have no energy, no stamina, no concentration, no skills, and no sense. If you took them on your payroll, they would be on permanent sick leave, end quote. And then third, we have Job's description of their reputation, verses 5 through 7. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in the holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together. Again, to quote from Christopher Ashe, he says, These are the kind of people you don't want near your property or your family. And when they come near, you shout for them to go away, as you do for disreputable and potentially dangerous people. And so they are reduced to living in terrible places, in wadis that suddenly flood, in caves, in the wild, among the bushes, groaning in need, like in the word bray there refers to the sound of donkeys. So they're living among the bushes, groaning in need, like braying donkeys. Here are men excluded from civilized society. And then fourth, Job's, Job sets forth their character. That's in verse 8, a senseless, a nameless brood, they have been whipped out of the land. And I think it's important that we understand, especially what Job means here, if we are to understand Job's criticism of these mockers. For there are people, commentators, who are actually critical of Job. And perhaps you may find yourself kind of sympathizing with what I'm about to say. They say Job here is showing himself to be insensitive, cruel, condescending, in his own mockery of people who are poor and weak, People who should be the objects of his concern and care. How dare he talk like this about poor people? He should be taking pity on them. But then we learn that they are senseless and nameless, which tells us that they're not the virtuous poor. These are not people who are poor because of oppression by the rich and powerful or because of unfortunate circumstances. The word senseless means literally in the Hebrew, sons of fools. And when you know what a fool is, biblically speaking, a fool is not someone lacking intelligence, but someone who is spiritually ignorant and, worst of all, morally wicked. 
And that they are nameless could mean that they are people um, who just aren't known. People don't know who they are. But here it means that they don't have a good reputation. Literally, they are sons of no name. So they are sons of fools and sons who have no known family to which they belong. They are probably illegitimate children. They don't even know who their parents are or at least who their fathers are. At the very least, they come from parents who have no standing in society. And so these are young men who are unemployable. They are useless. They are dirt poor. And it's not because of, they are the victims of unfortunate circumstances or of a cruel society. Well, then what's happening? Ash puts it this way. He says, they never worked at school. They never took the opportunities offered them. Never showed honesty or reliability because they are thieves and violent men because they are foolish and wicked, end quote. In a day and age when there was no welfare, if you decided to live a foolish life of laziness or of wickedness, decided not to apply yourself in some kind of work, you would have to live with the consequences as someone poor with no place in society. And such people usually resorted to stealing and violence, which resulted in verse 8 of being whipped out of the land, probably referring to them being expelled, being banished from society. And let's not miss the main point. The main point is that it is these lowest of the low who are laughing at Job. He is so decrepit that thieves and robbers mock him because they are bitter at society jealous of the good fortune of the respected citizens of that society, they are glad to see one of society's highest brought low and even below them. Their jealousy has become the, the even more wicked form of envy, which is why Job's demise, is, demise is, is enjoyable as far as they are concerned. It makes them feel better about themselves because they see Job's fall as an indication that God is not on the side of the prosperous. So then how do they mock Job? How are they treating him? This brings us to verses 9 through 15. Verse 9 opens with another, and now, indicating a change from his pleasant and prosperous past. Now he has become a song and byword to these mockers. He's the butt of their jokes. Um, they're probably singing uh, about him as part of their repertoire of drunken songs, where they're boisterously laughing. And that Job is a byword means that he and his name have been made into an idiom. There was apparently in that day a well-known expression that involved Job. If you wanted to insult someone, you would say, well, he's become a Job. It was a way to refer to someone who was utterly cursed and worthless. And verse 10 tells us that they showed how much they abhorred him by keeping aloof from him. And then when they did encounter him, they would spit on him. And verse 11 explains why this is. It's because they interpreted what happened to Job as coming from God. This loosing of his cord probably has reference to the rope of a tent. It's a figure of a person's life collapsing like a tent. Or it could have reference to the unstringing of a bow, a figure of someone whose strength is gone. And so they view Job as helpless. And this is all because he's under the judgment of God and they're more than happy to help God in humbling Job. Because if godly Job can be humbled, then the order of the universe is in question. And then the constant call from society to these mockers of their need to submit to God rings hollow. 
Job's humbling means that as far as they are concerned, they are just as much on God's side as anybody, which means that they don't have to bother with trying to get right with God. The wicked world loves to rejoice over anything that they can use to quiet their consciences. And especially welcome is the suffering of God's people. And if they can actually be the instruments of persecution, that is all the better because it means then, as they see it, that God is not willing to oppose them. And so it emboldens them in their sinful rebellion. Verses 12 through 14 paint this horrible picture of people who are intent on harassing Job. These enemies don't just passively mock Job, but they actively attack Job. There are a number of metaphors that are described here that are used in describing their antagonistic stance toward Job. They rise up on his right hand, which is imagery from the courtroom where the accuser stands up on the right. It may also mean that they're simply saying because the person on the right is the, that's the, the person in the place of honor, that they view themselves as in that place of honor and Job below them. And they feel that this justifies their, as it says, pushing away his feet, an expression for tripping him up. And that they cast up against him their ways of destruction. That's using, using the army, uh, the language of an army laying down siege ramps in order to take over and destroy a city. The breaking up of his path in verse 13 is literally a digging up of his path. A way of saying that they're doing anything they can to interfere with his plans and activities. Some have suggested that this path is a figure of speech still related to laying siege to a city and that this path is his path of escape. And the idea is that any time Job tries to relieve his misery and to get out from under the hands of these mockers, his enemies destroy his efforts. So intent are they on attacking Job that he says they promote his calamity. Literally, they profit for my ruin, which could mean that they bring profit to his ruin by helping to promote his ruin, or it could mean that they profit by his ruin in the sense of finding some kind of pleasure in it, that there's no real profit to them except for the sick pleasure of seeing Job hurt is found in the words, they need no one to help them. Literally, it says there is no helper to them. In other words, what they are doing to Job brings them no benefit. What they're doing to Job doesn't really bring them any advantage. What they are doing is just mindless hate. And this expression is said by some to be an Arabic expression referring to contemptible persons, which certainly these mockers are, who to take pleasure in a man's ruin. The expression can also mean that they did what they did against Job without any kind of outside help or encouragement which would point to the level of depravity, that there is no one outside of their circles who's willing to encourage them. Not, there's no one willing to join with them in what they're doing to Job. There's no one who wants to associate with them and join up with them. No one shares their sentiments. No one wants to help them. This is all of them. No one else can understand even how, how they could do this. It makes no sense. It's just mindless hate. Or the expression can mean that there is no helper against them who will take up Job's cause. And so they come against Job like an army breaching through a city wall. Uh, there's, there's imagery here of a, of, the, of, of a river. Probably 
it's like this, the soldiers, you can imagine as they breach into a city, all of these soldiers flowing in, it looks like a river flowing in, and the goal is to crash down the city wall. This is a figure of these mockers coming against Job with full force to utterly crush him. And then we have the significance of all of this described in verse 15, kind of the result that he says, terrors are turned upon me. My honor is pursued as by the wind and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. This is his way of saying that he is experiencing the, the terrors of death. This is, that's how he, he feels as he, what he feels like at this particular juncture. He's, he, it's like he's experiencing the terrors of death as he slips into hell. The book of Job, so far there have been references to the wicked being overtaken by these terrors as they die. But for Job, such terrors have come upon him. They have pursued his honor. They have effectively blown it away as by the wind, which means that he he feels like he's dying away as someone with no status, no noble status with God or man. He says his prosperity has passed away. In the Hebrew, it's, it's the word for salvation. It's the word for deliverance, the salvation of God delivering his people from evil. He says it's passed on like a cloud being driven by the wind because his enemies are being allowed by God to make him experience the terrors of being separated from God. They're happy. They're happy for Job to lose hope about the future. And like we find in the laments of the Psalms, Job expresses the effect of these attacks on him physically and emotionally, which is what we find in verses 16 through 18, as well as 27 through 31, and then interspersed among these verses. Job is expressing his frustration with what's going on from a spiritual point of view in relation to God, which is also a key part of a biblical lament. And in fact, is for the child of God, the hardest part of all. Where is God in all of this? I first draw your attention to how Job describes his struggle from a physical and emotional point of view. He says in verse 16 through 18, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. So Job has apparently been sick for such a long time that he is emotionally and physically spent. If your soul is poured out, it means that your soul is drained out. You are drained emotionally. You have nothing more to give. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. The agony of the approaching Death on the cross led him to say, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. And I don't believe that's hyperbole. I don't believe that's an exaggeration. Just the emotional toil alone of knowing the physical and spiritual pain that was coming was literally killing him. And in a similar way, Job has no relief from this agony that involves pain day and night. Verse 18 talks about clothes that are changed or in the Hebrew disguised that bind him like the tight neck collar of a tunic which probably means that only with great strength is Job able to change his clothes because they 
are stuck to him from all of his oozing sores. Or perhaps the idea is that the strength of his disease is so great that his clothes are disfigured, they're disguised, he can't even tell what his clothes are because of all of the goo that has gone into his clothes from his sores, changing the color and texture of his clothes. But either way, his disease or his clothes are bound to him like this tight collar. And then we have verses 27 through 31. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. And in this section, Job reiterates how he never has relief from his agony. His inward parts, literally his intestines, but we believe it's referring to his heart. Um, it's referring to inside of himself where he's dealing emotionally with these things. He's constantly stirred up. Every morning when he gets up, it's just another day of affliction. He goes about darkened, he says, with his skin turning black and falling off. This is not a change in color due to the tanning that comes through the sun. This is probably leprosy or something like it. His skin is deeply diseased. And that's the external manifestation of the disease. Internally, his bones feel like they are burning. With the heat of fever and inflammation he stands up and he cries out for help in the assembly, but what happens, he's ignored. He shares an affinity, he says, with jackals and ostriches. These are the animals that are known to live way out away from everybody, out in the desert wastes. They're known for their mournful cries that can be heard perhaps in the distance. He used to play the harp and the lyre and the pipe, instruments known for their lively, cheerful sounds, but all that now comes from him is mourning and weeping. And in all of this, his struggle is ultimately with God. What is at stake is God's unwillingness to answer his prayers and God allowing him to be treated unjustly, which is a veiled accusation that God himself is unjust. Verses 19 through 23 are all about Job's struggles with God not answering his prayers. Notice beginning at verse 19, God has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the help of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it. You toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. We see that Job continues, and he's correct in this. He believes that God is ultimately behind all that's happening to him. What is perplexing is, is how God will not respond to his cries for help. To the contrary, Job feels like God has been cruel to him, even persecuting him. In verse 22, Job uses the figure of a tornado. To, as the way I take it, he, he describes God as playing with him in a cruel way. Christopher Ash, in his commentary, he says, he sees God as one who lifts him up, exalting him to this great position, and yet it turns out he has only done this as a tornado might sweep a man high up in the air, only to dash him to the ground. This is what happened to Job, end quote. And then we have verses 24 through 26, 
all about Job's struggle with God's seeming injustice. Job describes the situation by first asking questions, verses 24 through 25. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his disaster cry for help? Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? And the question, these questions get at what we expect people to do, first of all, who are themselves in deep distress. If there was an earthquake and a building falls on a victim. Do we not expect the person to stretch out his hand and cry for help? Of course. And we would say yes, because the pattern is that we expect anyone on the outside who hears that cry to grab that hand and to help the person to safety. People cry for help because people help the helpless. And Job points out that that's how he operated. Again, thinking of the past. He weeped and his soul grieved over the needy that he encountered. And the idea is not that he simply felt sympathy for the suffering, but he helped. Of course he helped. That's the godly, right, civil, human thing to do. And that's the response that we expect from God. But then Job has found himself needy, thrusting his trembling hand through a crack in the rubble, so to speak, and God just walks by. No sympathy, no help. To the contrary, Job's longing for good was met with evil, and not here moral wickedness, but in the Hebrew, it's talking about the evil of just of hard times, difficult times. When he waited for the light of God's favor, it was darkness that came. And Job doesn't straight out mention God in these verses, but they follow right upon ones that do, and the implications are clear that in these verses, as Ash puts it, Job is contrasting how decent people generally behave. He's contrasting that with how God has behaved toward him. And these are serious accusations, right? And we're right to question if Job has crossed the line here. Is this... Is this a stance toward God of disrespect? It's one thing to be factual. God didn't answer. That's true. God did not answer Job's prayer by giving him relief. That's, that's factual. He didn't satisfy Job's longings for good, but rather the hardships were piled and increased. The loss of his wealth being followed by a loss of his family, followed by a loss of his health, followed by attacks of his unloving friends, so that in all that has happened to him, there just seems to be this ever-escalating descent into agony. And it's one thing to point factually to these realities and understand that God is sovereign, thus behind these things. It's another thing to say God is cruel and that he is a persecutor who is playing games and who was without compassion, unlike him. That sounds condescending and prideful. The truth is that, God, that Job did not have the understanding that we have today, and he's not to be excused for such slanderous remarks. And we can acknowledge with some measure of grace, though, that he didn't understand something that I want to make certain you, as New Testament Christians, do understand and uh, what would have helped Job and what does help us in dealing with suffering is to know that there is such a thing as suffering that serves a good purpose. God has designed suffering as something beneficial for us as believers, even using it as a necessary, that's an important key word, a necessary part of the salvation process of preparing us for life with him. This is what Paul means 
when he says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This positive, necessary use of suffering as part of our salvation is what Peter is referring to in the passage that I read earlier, 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, he says, if necessary. He says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And in the Greek, if necessary, that's a first-class condition that affirms the truth of the condition. So Peter is saying that, indeed, suffering is necessary. And he says, if necessary, and it is that you've been grieved by various trials, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so suffering is necessary. Necessity of your suffering means that God is not always going to answer your prayer for relief as you want. He's not always going to bring uh, to an end the injustices that you are experiencing. He's not going to until his purposes in that suffering are complete. It's actually God's goodness and his grace that make it necessary that he allow your suffering to continue. Think of how this was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. His suffering was in the plan and purpose of God, redemptive. The goal was that Jesus suffer the wrath of God that we deserve as payment for our sins. Though himself without sin, he became sin for us. And to that end, Jesus had to suffer. And he cried out in agony for relief as he suffered the extremes of injustice. Think of it in the Garden of Gethsemane. All of his life, according to Hebrews 5, 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. But he was also first allowed to suffer great injustice. He was falsely accused. He was wrongfully prosecuted. He was sentenced to death in a way that was designed for the worst of criminals, and Jesus was made to endure all of this until his task was completed, which was to actually die under the curse of our sins. And this was necessary in the plan of God because this was the only way to free us from the curse of sin, and that was God's gracious and loving will for us. And the lesson in this is that suffering is a necessary part of God's purposes for us. It was God's will for our salvation that Jesus suffer. So his suffering became necessary. It is God's will for our salvation that continues to require suffering. And I'm not going to get into it this morning. We don't have to fully understand. I mean, we can understand something of how God uses suffering. But even in that, I don't think we fully understand it. But even so, we may not fully understand how and why suffering is necessary, but God says it is so. And so you and I are called to trust God. And to patiently accept that God is not always going to answer our prayers as we would like. Put an end to our unjust suffering. Because he's doing something in our lives that is so wonderful that it would be messed up if he were to end the suffering too early. It's God's determination to bless you in love that makes it necessary that you suffer. Amen. Let us pray.
Great God and Father, we thank you that there is a good purpose that you have ordained for suffering. For Father, apart from your grace, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our suffering would be but the experience of your wrath, the curse that we deserve for our sins. We thank you, Father, that in Christ, through Christ, um, our suffering is for a good purpose, namely our salvation. Um, Father, we thank you for these words of Job that remind us of the truths of your word. They remind us that suffering is hard. It is very difficult. And so, Father, give us faith in the midst of such suffering. May we trust you, and may we, Father, understand that when you don't answer our prayers as we would like, when the injustices don't stop like we feel they should, that your plan is still right on track. And it's a plan not to destroy us, but to bless us. We give thanks and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.